that when we read the book of Ephesians, we're reading a letter, a letter written by a particular person, written to particular people, written for a particular purpose. And we here get the privilege of reading this letter that was originally intended for someone else. We're really reading over somebody's shoulders because we trust that within this letter, God has also spoken a word for us. Now, in order to understand better what we read in this letter, it's helpful to understand a bit about the people to whom it was written. It was written to a faith community in Ephesus. So the question is, what was this church like? What drew people to be a part of it? What did they struggle with together? Well, it seems that this faith community in Ephesus was made up largely of Gentile Christians, people who are brand new to the faith and people who are learning the language of faith for the first time. So that community would have been quite different than the community that's gathered here this morning. Many of us grew up in the church. This is not the way it was for these folks in Ephesus. So in the first chapters of this letter, Paul talks a lot about God and Jesus and about what God is doing in the world through Jesus. And not only about what God is doing in the world, but what God is doing in them, in this very particular community, through Jesus. Paul puts it this way. They'd been dead in their trespasses, but God, in God's mercy through Jesus, has brought them back to life. And through this process of rebirth, they are becoming a new people, a transformed people. They're called to take off their old selves and their former ways of life so that they can put on new selves, fashioned according to the image of God. And this is what it meant to grow up into Christ, at least in part. And I say in part because this encounter with the living Christ resulted not only in the creation of new individuals, it resulted in the creation of a new family, of a new community. Whereas once these Gentiles had been strangers and outsiders to the faith, they were now insiders. God, through the cross of Jesus, had broken down these dividing walls of hostilities that had separated the Jews from the Gentiles and had brought them all into one family, brought them all into the household of God. And that's what you read if you read the first couple chapters of Ephesians. Now they were all members of one body whose head was Christ, and they were called to grow up into Christ to build up his body in love. In the scripture reading this morning, Paul emphasizes this communal identity. He begins by reminding his readers that they are members of one another. And he spends quite a bit of time talking about how they are to live together precisely because they are members of one another. Now, I'm sure this was a radical thought for these Gentile Christians. Not only did they now belong to a family that was comprised now of both Jews and Gentiles, they also belonged to a family that was now comprised of folks that ordinarily wouldn't have associated with each other. We had people worshiping together in homes, wealthy merchants 
and household slaves together, intellectual elites and uneducated folks together, men, women, adults, children together, all members of equal value in this new family whose lives are interwoven because they are members of one another. That we are members of one another may also be a rather radical thought for us as 21st century North Americans. I know, we're good menos. We talk a lot about the importance of community. But the fact is we are steeped in a culture of individualism where the bottom line is not the well-being of all people or the common good. What's most important, what the bottom line is, what's in it for me? What's good for me? In the book, Habits of the Heart, Individualism and Commitment in American Life, Robert Bella puts it like this. We believe in the dignity, indeed the sacredness, of the individual. Anything that would violate our right to lives as we see fit is not only morally wrong, it is sacrilegious. End of quote. But in this morning's scripture passage, Paul presents a different kind of picture. Now, according to Paul, we are not independent individuals. We are part of a living, breathing body whose members are interconnected. Our lives are intertwined. The action of one member affects all the others. We saw that illustrated clearly in this morning's children's story, how our words, kind or unkind, can send a series of ripples through the entire family. The fact is, like it or not, in this human family, and particularly in the household of God, we are connected. Our words and our actions, be they harsh or kind, selfish or giving, compassionate or judging, they have an impact on this family. You know, I really appreciate Paul's candor in this portion of the letter that we read this morning. He seems to acknowledge that just because God has welcomed us all into this one family doesn't mean that it's easy for us to live together. And here how I've, this is how I've come to think about it over time. Where two or three are gathered, where two or three are gathered, there is bound to be stuff. We each bring our own stuff with us, from our families of origin, from our life experiences, whatever. We bring our stuff into this community. And when my stuff bumps into your stuff, the dynamics can get interesting. It sounds like the dynamics were pretty interesting in Ephesus. We get a glimpse of those dynamics as Paul names some of the issues that this church in Ephesus were struggling with. Truth-telling, anger, stealing, words and attitudes that tear down rather than build up. He even talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. It appears that this church had some pretty serious issues that threatened to divide the body. 
and so do we. Perhaps not so much here at East Chestnut Street at this point in time, but certainly our conference and our denomination, the wider church, face challenges that threaten the unity of the body. We can be disappointed by that. We can be disillusioned by that. And I confess that sometimes I have been. But in those moments, it's been helpful for me to remind myself about what the church is. The church is not a gathering place for perfect people. It's a gathering place for broken people, people in need of Christ's love and forgiveness and transformation. People who are honestly seeking Jesus together, even as we fall short in so many ways along the way. It's in this spirit that Paul addresses this fledging community in Ephesus. Paul is writing to people who, like us, are in the process of taking off our old selves and putting on new selves. He's writing to people who are growing up toward Jesus, but still have a ways to go. And he offers them a picture of what it looks like along the way as they grow toward Jesus together. He first addresses the issue of truth-telling. This morning's scripture passage begins with this instruction. So then, putting away falsehood, let us speak truth to our neighbors. Evidently, truth-telling was something that the Ephesian community struggled with. But what about us? We're an honest group of people, aren't we? I know that none of us here would ever tell an outright lie. But might we sometimes hedge the truth to avoid conflict or to keep from hurting someone's feelings? I know that we would never tell an outright lie. But might we sometimes hide the truth to stay out of trouble or to cover up parts of ourselves that we do not want exposed? As we struggle with what it means to be truthful, Paul offers a powerful rationale for speaking the truth. And his rationale is this, for we are members of one another. Paul understands that this body, knit together by a common commitment to Christ, can be damaged by dishonesty. When dishonesty enters the life stream of the body, it grows like a cancer to erode trust. And that's serious business because trust is the glue that holds the body parts together and enables them to grow and to work together. And without that trust, the body falls apart. Paul recognizes that our failure to speak the truth not only affects each one of us personally, it affects the whole body. And speaking the truth is rarely easy. It calls for wisdom to know how and when to speak. For example, the mandate for speaking the truth does not obligate us to indiscriminately spill our guts. 
we are not obligated to share everything with everybody. Just because it's church does not mean we are obligated to share everything with everybody. Nor does it give us license to haul off and blast each other. While Paul promotes honesty, he also says in chapter 4, verse 29, Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only, only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And perhaps Paul puts it most succinctly earlier in chapter 4 in verse 16, when he encourages his fellow believers to speak the truth in love. Well, then Paul goes on to address another issue that compromises the health of the body. Theft of all things. Those who make their living by taking what is not theirs are to give up this career. Instead, they are to begin making a living by working honestly with their own hands. And at first glance, it may seem that this, this instruction just isn't applicable to who we are or what we're experiencing here at East Chestnut Street. As far as I know, we don't have an issue with stealing. It is, however, I think, interesting to look at Paul's reason for this proposed change in lifestyle. He doesn't say, stop stealing because it's wrong. It's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. He says, start engaging in some good honest work so that you have something to share with those in need. And that's where I hear some challenge. How do we see church? Is it a place where we go primarily to take? Do we come to church expecting to get what we want? Or do we see it as a place to give what we have? Do we see it as a place we go to offer and to share who we are, both our gifts and our vulnerabilities? Yeah, even our vulnerabilities is something to be shared for the building up of the body of Christ. Paul goes on to identify a third item that was apparently an issue for the folks in Ephesus, and that was anger. And now maybe if we haven't been able to identify with Paul's directives about lying and stealing, maybe we can identify with this one on anger. Anger is often a difficult issue for peace-loving Mennonites to talk about. We may have in our mind that good Christians don't get angry. But the truth is, some of us do. So, what does Paul say about anger? He says, be angry, but do not sin. Here Paul seems to distinguish between the feeling of anger and how we choose to act on it. In other words, it's okay to feel angry, but take care, take care on how you act on it. Paul is remarkably in tune with what we know about anger today. Mary Steffi, who was taught anger management and violence prevention in Lancaster County, writes this about anger. 
Anger is a fact, not a fault. Anger is common to everyone, including Christians. Anger is a secondary emotion. That is, it's always about something else. Anger is a result of a real or perceived boundary violation and is an indicator of underlying pain, fear, and frustration. And finally, what you believe about anger in general and your own in particular is key to how you're going to deal with your own and others' anger. And deal with it we must, because as author Elizabeth O'Connor points out, anger is a form of energy that will not just go away. The key is to use that anger for constructive purposes, to work for justice, to redress wrongs, to make changes for the better. If we choose not to use our anger energy for constructive purposes, then in O'Connor's words, it will build up, us, build up in us until one day it erupts in violent and sometimes dangerous ways or turns inward to destroy us. Anger held too far back in our unconscious finds its expression in illness and disease. In subtle ways, it will destroy the relationships that we so desperately need for any enduring conviction of our own worth. End of quote. Well, this is serious stuff. I mean, this, these are costly consequences, and that's probably why Paul brings up the subject of anger. He knows that it can tear the body apart. And I'm sure that's why he adds this counsel. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. Put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. There's just a lot at stake when we hold on to our anger and act it out in destructive ways. It's all too easy to make room for the devil. But Paul himself reminds us that when we do experience anger, we do not have to invite the devil in. When we're angry, we can blow up, be rageful, be violent. But there is an alternative. We can instead take a deep breath or a time out. Recognize that what we're feeling and take some time to reflect on why. Or find another way to release our anger energy, and scrubbing floors works well for me. When we're angry, we can withdraw from another person. We can label them. We can write them off. We can backbite and gossip about them. But there's an alternative. We can instead commit ourselves to staying in relationship with them. We can initiate a conversation to clear things up. We can bracket our feelings long enough to try to understand things from their perspective. I think this may be what Paul has in mind when he says, be angry, but do not sin. Anger may be a feeling we can't prevent, but we do have a choice about what we will do about it.
Now, all of these issues that Paul addresses so candidly in his letter to the church at Ephesus are really pretty basic stuff. As members of Christ's body, we're connected to each other. The words, the actions, the behavior of each one affects all the other members. And as we grow up into Christ, we are not only transformed as individuals, we are transformed as a community. And in this process of transformation and growth, we will deal with issues. This is just normal. Issues like honesty, how do we speak the truth in love? Issues like anger, how do we express our anger in ways that help the body grow rather than tear it down? And issues like commitment, are we part of a body just so we can get what we need or so that we can help the body grow up in love? Admittedly, Dealing with issues like these is tough work. Why do we bother to do it? To earn a few more stars in heaven? Or because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't? Well, Paul suggests another reason, a reason that is grounded in a gift that we have received and that we continue to receive day after day, after day. That gift is God's love, God's forgiveness, and God's commitment to us, a gift that is far bigger than I think most of us can fathom. And having received that gift, we are invited to share it freely, freely with others. In Paul's words, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God's transforming love is the starting point of our life together. My prayer for us all is that we would be deeply, ever more deeply, rooted in that love. And that that love will keep us growing together and struggling together and learning from each other as we grow up together in Christ. <laughs>